Chapter 12 of Unknown London Written by Walter George Bell This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Janet Chapter 12 London's Lost King Lost, the statue of a king. Lost, that is, to London this past century and a half, but not to the country of its creation. If travel leads your steps north, you will find in the beautiful grounds of Newby Hall, near Ripon, York's, raised in front of the mansion, the historical but forgotten statue of King Charles II, trampling on the prostate protector Oliver. Originally it stood where today is the mansion house. It was the one architectural adornment of the old stocks market, the king, astride a pawing horse, being mounted on a high pedestal, but little honoured, I fear, by the fishwives, the vegetable and herb sellers, and the butchers who, till the middle eighteenth century, kept his company, and made this central spot in the city noisy with their cries. The stocks market has gone, stalls, name, and all. Long since the Lord Mayor's stocks have disappeared, wherein many a vagrom man has been held fast by the legs. St. Christopher Lestock's church no longer stands. The entire parish, church and churchyard, have been swallowed up in the Bank of England. The passer-by occasionally gets a glimpse through frowning portals of the pretty garden within the bank, bright in summer with the gorgeous colouring of flowers, amidst which a fountain plays. That was the churchyard. After the building over of the ground, the interment of one Jenkins, a bank clerk, was allowed there. He stood seven feet six inches high, and his burial took place within the bank in order to defeat the body-snatchers, who might be covetous for so rich a prize. Sir Robert Viner, the Prince of Goldsmiths, was the donor of the Stocks Market statue, an episode in his picturesque career. Baronet, alderman sheriff lord mayor and much more a genial soul addicted to good living he was a familiar figure in restoration days pepys who loved bright company kept an account with him knew him well and often in the diary mentions his activities in the king's interests for viner possessed money and charles did not and there was the bond that linked the two Goldsmith and banker he was, indeed, the chief financier of his day, a man with whom Charles, in his many and devious shifts for money, could not do without. He gave Charles his crown, literally, for the state jewels having been sold or pawned by Charles I and the Parliament to provide funds for the opposing armies, Sir Robert Viner advanced £32,000 to furnish a new set of regalia. Charles ruined him leaving him when, by an arbitrary act, the king closed the exchequer in January, 1672, an unsatisfied creditor for £416,000. Viner shouldered his burden, and struggled along to eventual bankruptcy, protected by royal command, forbidding his clients to sue him, and an annual payment of interest promised but long deferred. And in his broad-mindedness, he seems to have borne the king no malice. He is best remembered by an anecdote told of a city feast in his mayoralty. 
whereat the king, stealing away to his coach in Guildhall Yard, was seized by the hand by his host, who cried with an oath, Sire, you shall stay and take t'other bottle. Charles, ready in wit, replied with a line of an old song, He that is drunk is as great as a king. And the two jovial monarchs returned to the table to finish the carouse. The great fire of London in 1666 swept the full length of Lombard Street on its second day. Viner's fine house there, the typical mansion of a rich city merchant, stood in a pleasant garden, where now is a branch post office, and it burnt with the rest, but his wealth, being largely in bonds and securities, was easily removed while the flames were still threatening. The king sent an order to Windsor Castle that Viner's securities, monies, and jewels should be safe lodged there, and appointed also a place for him in order that his labours for the crown should continue undisturbed. The city churches destroyed in the great fire included St. Mary Woolchurch Hall, and a finer and larger stocks market being afterwards determined upon, the site of the church and graveyard were thrown into it. What more befitting so central a position than a statue raised to the greatness of Charles the Second? So thought Sir Robert, with whom loyalty was the very lifeblood, when surely the most curious combination of circumstances that has ever occurred placed such a statue within his reach. The story has run with a ripple of laughter. It chanced that John Sobeski, King of Poland, having slaughtered a vast number of Turks and so saved Vienna, his ambassador in England ordered an equestrian statue of his master commemorative of the victory. Sobeski, engrossed with larger affairs, did not send his ambassador the money with which to pay the sculptor, and pending a settlement of this vital matter, the statue lay boxed up on Tower Wharf, below London Bridge, awaiting exportation. That was Viner's opportunity, and he was prompt to seize it. The sculptor, forgotten but meritorious, put vigor into his work, representing Sobeski in warrior's dress trampling upon a helpless Turk. The goldsmith purchased the statue. Footnote 1 There is another version of the origin of the statue, that Viner first heard of it from his agent at Leghorn, that he acquired it for a mere song, and shipped it from the continent to Tower Wharf. I do not know which is true. End footnote and disregarding the incongruities of costume, had the head of the Polish king replaced by that of Charles the Second, and the features of the Turk lying prostrate under his horse's feet, altered to those of Oliver Cromwell. Thus manoeuvred, the statue arose on this spot in honour of the sovereign. It was dedicated on the anniversary of the king's birthday in 1672. Walpole says that Latham carved the head of King Charles. There is not the least doubt about the story, which the oriental attire and headdress of the betrampled Cromwell, as still to be seen at Newby Hall, fully bear out. Naturally the lampooners made busy. One wrote these lines some years after the erection of the statue. Could Robert Viner have foreseen the glorious triumph of his master. 
the old church statue gold has been, which now is made of alabaster. But wise men think, had it been wood, twere for a bankrupt king too good. Those that the fabric well consider do of it diversely discourse. Some pass their censure on the rider, others their judgment on the horse. Most say the steed's a goodly thing, but all agree tis a lewd king. Andrew Marvel, when Member of Parliament for Hull, spent his satire upon the ill-judged statue in lines which passed from hand to hand, but attained print only posthumously. In order to understand them, remember that the equestrian figure was set up after the general ruin which attended the closing of the exchequer. So Sir Robert advanced the king's statue in token, of a broker defeated and Lombard Street broken. Some thought it a mighty and generous deed, obliging the city with the king on a steed. When with honour he might from his word have gone back, he that waits for a calm is absolved by a rack. By all it appears from the first to the last, to be a revenge and a malice forecast. Upon the king's birthday to set up a thing that shows him a monkey more like than a king. When each one that passes finds fault with the horse, yet all do assure that the king is much worse. And some by its likeness Sir Robert suspect that he did for the king his own statue erect. But with all his faults pray give us our king, as ever you hope in December for spring. For though the whole world cannot shrew such another, we have better have him than his bigoted brother. Not less biting in their allusions are verses on a dialogue between two horses. The steeds bearing the figures of Charles I at Charing Cross and Charles II at the Stocks Market have joined company at night, their riders having dismounted, the father to visit Archbishop Laud and the son to seek more questionable associates. An anonymous writer of the next century gave in satirical form the last dying speech and confession of the horse at Stocks Market. Ye whimsical people of London's fair town, who one year put up what the next year you pull down. Full sixty-one years have I stood in this place, and never till now met with any disgrace. What affront to crowned heads could you offer more bare than to pull down a king to make room for a mare? The great Sebesky on horse with long tail I first represented when set up for sale. A Turk, as you see, was placed under my feet, to prove o'er the Sultan my triumph complete. When the king was restored, you then, in a trice, called me Charles the Second, and by way of device, said the old whiskered Turk had Oliver's face, though you know to be conquered he ne'er felt the disgrace. As the market is moved, I'm obliged to retreat. I could stay there no longer, with nothing to eat. Now the herbs and the greens are all carried away. I must trot unto those who will find me in hay. The city bore with the statue, 
a constant shaft of opprobrium and ridicule for two-thirds of a century, when in 1738 the closing of the stocks market and clearance of the ground for building the mansion house left it on hand. What to do with it was a problem the civic fathers could not solve. They had then had more experience of the Stuarts in no way enlarging the popularity of that dynasty. A Hanoverian sat on the British throne. Rider and horse were laid aside for several years, out of sight in a builder's shed, and when memory of them had faded, the Common Council in the year 1779 presented the statue to Robert Viner, a descendant of the loyal Lord Mayor. It was set up by him at Gautby Park, Lincolnshire, and its last migration was in 1883 to Newby Hall, the Yorkshire seat of the present head of the Viner family, where today it stands. Such, in brief, is the story of the Stocks Market statue, and one wonders if another royal effigy has ever had such adventures. End of chapter 12